want a real brief outline of these few verses here, you could say that verse 12 is the ending of John the Baptist's ministry. So he's done his part now. We'll see that in just a minute. Also in verse 12, Jesus begins his ministry. So we have this overlapping of time, so to speak. We have this Isaiah prophecy in verses 15 and 16 that is also being fulfilled, even in the writing of this time from Matthew. And then finally, as I was just making mention of in verse 17, we have Jesus' message himself to his disciples, or at least those that are going to be his disciples that we'll see in the next section. But notice in verse 17, we're told here that from that time Jesus began to preach. Let's just talk about preaching for just a minute because that's what you come here every Sunday to hear. But what is this thing called preaching, this weird thing? Well, the word simply means, like we talked about with John the Baptist, it means to proclaim, to herald the truth, the truth of God's word. Not the preacher's message. This is not my message this morning. I give you my interjections, my thoughts about the text. But what my job is, is to preach the message that God has given to us in his book here, God's message, in its entirety. We've been talking a lot about that lately, and I want to keep reiterating the truth that it is necessary for us to go verse by verse every single time we go through the scriptures. We miss so much if we don't do that. Paul said in his last days, this was just before he was to be taken out of this earth, he said in Acts chapter 20, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That was his plan. That was his calling as an apostle. That was his work as God left him here, as he studied under Gamaliel as a a Jewish rabbi and learned the ways of the Pharisees. And we talked about those guys. Paul says, listen, I have one purpose for the church and that is to preach the entire counsel of the Word of God. And sadly, today, a lot of people are not doing that. I can't tell you the number of conversations, and I don't know if you have these conversations or not. I hope you do. I can't tell you the number of conversations with people that I'm having about how they're not hearing certain things out of Scripture. People talking to me about, well, I didn't know that. I've never heard that before. Our pastor didn't talk about that. It's not brought up. Well, you do miss a lot of things if you don't go through the Scripture verse by verse. But it's not surprising that people are not hearing what God is really saying because God himself has said in the latter days as he is about to make his approach to take back the earth, it's going to be that way. Just listen to the text again as Paul many thousands of years ago said to Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, this is not a, oh, they're not going to be able to hear it. It's that they're not going to want to hear it. They're not going to want to hear the things of God, but they're going to want to have their ears tickled. In other words, preacher, tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I want to hear. Now listen, here's the danger. Here's how this begins to spiral out of control. When the men of God, the women of God, begin to allow anything other than the clear teaching of God's word, then people will start pushing their own agenda. It works kind of like this. People will come into the church and over time they'll say, oh, you know what, we don't like this, we don't like that, we want you to change this and that. Well, what ends up happening is that also filters into the Word of God itself. The things of the church begin to push eventually the Word of the Lord out because people just want to hear what they want to hear. Don't tell me all about that stuff. I don't want to hear that kind of thing. I just want to hear something that's going to make me feel good for today so I can get through my week. Well, that has its place, but that's not the purpose of the Lord. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. 
Those of you that have been in Charlottesville for a lot of years and you know some of these older churches that have been around for a long time, you'll know that they're not what they once were. Now, I'm not going to point out any names because that's not important. What is important is we understand that as time goes by, this is being fulfilled. Verse 4, Paul says, And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. Myths. Can you imagine if every Sunday morning I stood up here and gave to you the latest myth that was going on? Now, I don't think Satan portrays it that way. I think what Satan does is he pushes hard to have men stand up in the pulpit and to share the latest fad, the next exciting thing, whatever is going to be the greatest self-help event, and push those things instead of what the Word of the Lord says. But if you notice the text, Jesus came preaching. And that means he came to proclaim. William Barclay, a great, great preacher in his own day, said this, that every preacher should proclaim with a voice of certainty. Listen, I hope you understand that the book that we're holding in our hands this morning is not just a book. It's not just ink pages filled with black ink. He says about John the Baptist, there was no doubt about his message. He did not come with perhapses and maybes and probabilities. He came with a definite message. And that was true, wasn't it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was John's message as well. He came, Barclay says, with the voice of the note of authority. Barclay writes, he, that is John, was speaking for the king. He was laying down and announcing the king's law, the king's command, and the king's decision. And he was said of a great preacher, he did not cloudily guess. He knew. Do you know how tragic it would be if you're witnessing to someone and all your answers were, well, I think so? I mean... This is what I think the Bible says. This is what I think God says. This is what I suppose. No, the people of God need to be people who said, no, this is what the Lord has said. This is the word of the Lord. You see, we're living in a day, and it's growing rapidly, beloved, where people are not adhering to the word of the Lord. They're coming up with their own ways of living, but that's not God's plan. We are to live according to the pattern that he has laid out for us in his word himself. Barclay also says, finally, of John the Baptist, the herald's message came from a source beyond himself. John was just a man. I'm just a man. You're just a man. You're just a woman. But in the spirit of God, in the power of God, we have the message of God. And we're to proclaim it boldly. Barclay says, it came from the king. The message here this morning is from the king himself. That's why I said as we gathered this morning, we're not just here for our sakes. We're here because the king is with us. And listen, if we don't believe that, we might as well go home right now. And I'm serious. If we don't believe that we are literally in the presence of God himself, we might as well just go home because we are really just wasting our time. But we've come in his name. Preaching speaks from a source beyond the preacher. It is not the expression of one individual's personal opinions. It is the voice of God, beloved, transmitted through that person to the people. It was with the voice of God that Jesus spoke to men and women. Jesus spoke. Jesus is now, according to Matthew, on the scene. He has now come to begin his ministry as John is fading into the background. And John understood that. 
John understood his role, his calling in this life, so much so that we'll see later in Matthew chapter 14 that he is going to lay his head on a block and it will be whacked off with a sword and it will be displayed in Herod's palace. John believed the message of God and he stood up in a righteous way and Herod didn't like it and he lost his life for it. And Jesus left the same message with us. And I dare say, I wonder if we believe this ourselves. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, you will be hated because of my name. And none of us like to think like that. That's not a fun message to think about. That's not an exciting pep rally to think that we will be hated by this world. But he says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. John in his gospel, chapter 15, said through Jesus' words, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it, had ha- it hated you. You know, we want to be friends with the world in a sense. We want the world to know that we love them. We want the world to know that God loves them. But we cannot be surprised when the world begins to turn its back on us. It's going to happen, beloved. It's going to happen more and more. Jesus said it was going to happen. Part of this shrinking away and this pulling back from what the truth of the Lord has said is because we don't like for people to be upset with us. We don't want want to lose our friends. We don't want to lose those people that we've tried to make connections with. But there comes a time where the Word of God has to stand in the forefront of everything that we are and everything that we believe because it's only through the power of God that people are saved for eternity, not because of us being friends with anyone. All of this means that we are ministers of the gospel, each one of us. We have been strategically, purposefully, located in our sphere of influence to be the ministers of the gospel, preachers in our own way, not necessarily called to proclaim publicly like I'm doing right now. That's not necessarily the call of preaching, but preaching through our lives, through our decisions, and through our actions. And the message is simply that Christ has come into the world to save sinners. That's why we're here. Keep repeating this over the years so that we're remembering as we're going through our weekly struggles and the things that we fight in this life and the things we want and don't want that we're remembering this life is not about me. This life is about proclaiming the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our home in heaven, amen? Aren't you excited about that? I mean, seriously, let's think about that for a minute. We are saved for eternity. We are never going to go to hell. We are never going to be under the dominion of Satan. We will forever be under the kingdom of God and his banner. But that's not the end of the story. The truth is, God said, wonderful, I've saved you now for a purpose, so that you'll go and you'll share the truth so others can be saved. Why that message? Why does God want us to do that? Because the souls of men and women are in darkness, even to this moment darkness. Colossians 1.13, Christ came, the Father sent him to rescue people from darkness, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Do you remember this morning, beloved, as we're celebrating the resurrection, that's why we're here, that God rescued us from the darkness. He saved us by his own free will, by his own choosing from the beginning of time. God set his hand on us so that we would come to the knowledge of himself. He did that. It's 
since the time of Adam and Eve, man has been living in darkness, this spiritual darkness, a heart and mind that is blinded by darkness. Psalm 82.5, they do not know nor do they understand, the psalmist says. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Who's he talking about? He's talking about every person out here who will not trust and accept who Christ is. The reason they don't is because they are in darkness. There's a spiritual darkness over the mind of the unsaved. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. What a sad state of affairs. What a sadness. To think that our friends out there, the people that we love and care for, our neighbors, our loved ones, our family members who don't acknowledge Christ are literally living in darkness. They don't know. They don't know. They don't understand. That's why Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're in darkness. Therefore, he's unable to see the truth of who God is because, unfortunately, the life that lives in darkness loves the darkness, wants more of the darkness desires the darkness, even though his mind and his heart knows that the God of creation exists. There's the irony. And even though they know God exists, they still want darkness. Paul said in Romans 1.21, for even though they know God, even though they know God, listen, you may have been brought up in the church all your life and you know God exists. Paul says here, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God. How did they know God? They knew God because God had placed himself in their hearts. But yet their hearts wanted darkness more because sin loves darkness. And whenever man rejects the truth of God, his understanding of God becomes darkened even further. What a great tragedy of thought. That as the light of truth is shined on a heart and God is opening that heart, if that person rejects the things of God, then darkness becomes even darker because they want more darkness. And he or she can't recognize God any longer. You watch some people who live their lives and there's that initial excitement about the things of God. It's the parable of the soils that Jesus talked about. They were brought up under the truth, but little by little they let the darkness of sin come into their life and now their life is more dark than it was before. And they reject more quickly now because sin has overcome them and the darkness has now completely replaced the truth almost totally. And sadly, again, man loves his sinful state so much that he wants more and more of that. John 3:19. Men loved the darkness rather than the light. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? Men love the darkness rather than, their li- than the light because their deeds were evil. Loving darkness. Loving darkness. And when man wants more and more darkness, he wants to rebel more and more against God. John 3.20, the very next verse, for everyone who does evil hates the light. Why do people do evil? Because they hate the light. Why do they reject Christ? Because they hate the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now what you're not looking at with me, because I didn't put it up on the screen and I didn't give you those references quickly enough, is that the word light is capitalized. It's referring to Christ. He is the light being spoken of here by John. For men love darkness more than they love Jesus. That's what John's saying. 
but he's comparing these two pictures for us so that we see clearly the difference between light and dark spiritually. Jesus is the light, beloved. The message is real simple here from John is that, listen, if you don't love Jesus, then you're in love with the, the darkness. It can only be one of the two. The amazing thing is, is that, again, man was designed to know God exists. He was, it was built into him. And not just only that he exists, but he truly is God. This is not just someone we're talking about as somebody to be excited about, but this is the God of the universe. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. I just had the opportunity to do Sunday school for the girls this morning, for the Avery girls, and we were talking about the Genesis account, weren't we girls? And we were talking about how, look out the window and what do you see? They said, well, see trees and light. and All that displays the glory of God. How do we know that God exists? God has given to us these beautiful truths that we can say to the world, look, here he is in his display. Now, he's not in the tree. He's not a tree. He's not the grass. He's not that kind of thing. But those creation things, created things, tell us of who he is. Romans 1.20 again, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been so clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without what? Excuse. Without excuse. What's Paul saying to the church at Rome? He's saying, listen, you were created to know God. But if you love sin more than you love God, you're going to love the darkness and that darkness is going to keep you blinded. And one day you're going to stand before him and there's not going to be an excuse that you're going to have for him because he's given you everything that you need to know to believe. Everything. Beloved, listen, that's preaching. It's preaching the message to our friends, to our loved ones, to the people that we care about. Now, you may not stand up in front of them with a headpiece on and a suit on and bright lights shining on them and watching by Facebook and all that kind of stuff, but there are going to be times where God is going to call on you to deliver the truth because you are the person in front of that other one. You are the light at that moment that Christ is shining through to give to them what he has built in your own soul and your own heart. And you have to make up your mind as to what am I going to do with this? Am I going to be used of God? Am I going to lovingly display Christ? Am I going to find the words through the power of the Spirit to give this person the truth? You will be called upon him. And here's what will help you. John MacArthur said this, and I wrote it down. I wanted to read it to you in his commentary on this chapter in in Matthew because I thought it was really very appropriate. He said, God didn't leave man just basically out there on his own. He, even after sin, gave to him two lighted candles, so to speak. So even though he wanted to extinguish the true light, God still gave to him the candles. Listen to what he says. One of them I've already talked about. After the fall, mankind had two candles. Just picture this little image of a candle with the light going out. As it were, they continued to give light about God and his will. The candle of creation, that's the one we just talked about from the psalmist, and the candle of the conscience. There's the illumination of the conscience. But man paid little attention to either, preferring to walk in the darkness of his own corrupted will. In his sinfulness, man continually extinguished the only two lights he had that revealed God's nature and his will for his creature. God gave it to him. 
You see, there will never be a day again when you can stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I never knew. That's not true. Even the native on the most remote island that's never been discovered by man will never be able to stand in the presence of God and say, I never knew. God will look at that person and he will say, yes, you did. Because I built into your heart the knowledge of who I am. Now, you may not know me, but you know that I am God. You know there is a God. And I even built this world so that you would be given a display of my handiwork to know that there is a God who created you. You are without excuse. And God will hold man accountable under his divine judgment. Now, because God loves us also, and let's hear that, God loves us, and he doesn't want us to be judged. He sent us the light. He sent his son. He sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in what? Darkness, but will be will have the light of life. John 1:4, in him was life, talking about Jesus, and the life was what? It was the light of men. John 9, 5, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, 35, so Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Again, MacArthur says, Jesus Christ came not only to make men sensitive, again to sin, but to restore the life and health that sin has destroyed. He came not only to reveal the darkness that sin causes, but also to bring the light that overcomes the darkness. Listen, beloved, as much as we begin this life in darkness, and as much as sin wants to live a life of darkness, God has revealed himself to us in light, and the most precious way he did that was through coming to this earth himself to be the eternal light for every heart to look upon. But we are the proclaimers of that. We are the proclaimers of him. And so God has not only provided man with the creation of himself, but also through his own conscience, and the world has no excuse. Now, understanding all of that, I wanted to go through all of that because it's important for us to understand what Matthew is doing here. Matthew is giving to us the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Imagine if you were living on the planet in that day, and you are now encountering Christ for the very first time. See, in our day, Christ is thrown around as a bad word. In that day, Christ was just coming on the scene and nobody really knew who he was. Except for the Hebrews. They knew him only because the scriptures had foretold about him. This is why Matthew keeps bringing up the prophecies. You know about him. You know about him. You know about him. He's been written about over and over and over again. Matthew's writing to Jews to prove to them that this truly is the Messiah who's come. And so it's important for us to understand as we learn some of these interesting things about Jesus from the Gospels. For example, again, the Hebrews believe that God was who he says he was. In Isaiah 2, excuse me, Isaiah 9, 2, the people, and this is the passage you have in front of you there in Matthew 4, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And so when John the Baptist, see, they would have known this. They would have remembered these prophecies. When John the Baptist came on the scene, they wanted to know, was he the light? And John says, no, I'm not the light. John 1, 
He says, were written at least by John the Apostle. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. So we're talking about two different Johns here. He came as a witness to testify about the light, capital L, that's Jesus, so that all men might believe through him. He was not the light. John the Baptist was not the light. But he came to testify about the light, Jesus Christ. So again, the Hebrews knew about the coming Savior and thought that maybe John the Baptist was the guy. But he wasn't the guy. And John understood that role and announcement when he made the announcement of the king. And how do we know that? Because John even says of himself later in the Gospel of John, I must decrease so that he increases. John knew he wasn't the light. He wasn't the one that the people were looking for. He was just the forerunner to the light. Now Jesus himself is on the, king, is on the throne. And that's where Matthew picks up. Now again, all of that. So you understand what's happening beginning in verse 12. In fact, there is a lot that's happened between verses 11 and 12. A year has probably elapsed between those two verses. We know that because of John's gospel. John, through chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4 in his gospel, gives us that year of time. And we're not going to go back through that. We'll get to that when we get to John's gospel. But just understand that between what we just saw in the baptism and Jesus beginning his public ministry, there's about a year gap of time. And during that year, John the Baptist's ministry continued. He was still serving the Lord. He was still giving his time to the Lord, his calling. But it was beginning to overlap more and more with the ministry of Jesus. John, again, knew his time was just about completed. That's why he said what I just mentioned in John 3. My time has become full. I must increase. Excuse me, he must increase and I must uh, decrease. And you might be asking this question. Why did Jesus wait until he heard, if you read with me there in verse 12, until John was taken into custody to begin his ministry? Why did Jesus have to hear about that? You say, I thought he was God. Yeah, he is. I've just been talking about that. Well, remember, Jesus did know all things, but he had, as we say, suspended or somewhat halted, if you will, some of the things of his Godhead while he was on the earth here. He didn't cease being God. But he suspended some of those attributes, if you will. He stopped using some of them and used his earthly timetable to promote his own timetable in eternity. In fact, everything that Jesus was doing here in his day was divinely controlled to perfectly fit into God's divine timetable. Everything. And that's true today. There's not anything, beloved, that's happening to you and me right now that's not perfectly controlled in God's divine timetable to fit his perfect plan of redemption. Everything has been set. You realize it was not an accident for you to be born to the people that you were born to. It was not an accident that you are who you are, where you are, what you've experienced, all that you've been through. It is a part of God's divine timetable. I didn't say God was part of the evil but God has used those evil moments to also bring Christ into your life to show you your need for him, which means if all of that is true, then everything even in the future of our lives right now on earth is a part of God's timetable, his divine plan. Do you see how when you start thinking and understanding that truth that there's nothing that we can do to swage God from his perfect plan? 
that our job is to just simply walk in obedience to Him and to take things as they come, the good days and the bad days, the confusing things and the not-so-confusing things, and to be able to say, somehow God is weaving all of this into His perfect plan, and Jesus becomes the exact representation of that plan. He wasn't concerned about what was happening. He wasn't upset about what was going on. He knew that God was doing everything perfectly. There have been other people that have known this. You remember the story of Joseph in, way back in Genesis when he was removed from his father's life and his brothers hated him so badly. Joseph gets to Egypt and he, his brothers, after a lot of time, show up and he says to them, Hey, boys, don't worry about it. Like, what? I mean, we sold you into slavery. You've been gone from our father's house for years. What do you mean don't worry about it? He says, that was all part of God's plan. I know that. God did this. Chapter 50, verse 20. For you, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Why? In order to bring about this present result. To preserve many people alive. You see, God has everything exactly the way he wants it to be. This is why the psalmist could say, and I love this, the mind of the man plans his way. My kids are so sick of hearing that. I have repeated that so many times over the years. I'm so tired of hearing that. But it is so eternally true, beloved. It is so eternally true. Listen, you and I this morning are making our plans about life, but God says you go right ahead because I'm going to trump those plans. Those plans that are in your head, if they're part of what my will for you is, they will come to perfect fruition. But if not, you will end up living a life that is separate from what my will is, and I'm going to have my way anyway. Why? Because you belong to me. The Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. Doesn't get much more clear than that. How then can man understand his way? In other words, the writer of the proverb is saying, listen, you go out and you try to figure out your life all you want to, and you should do that to a certain degree. But in the back of your mind, you better be saying, whatever the Lord's will is, whatever the Lord's will is. Lord, I want to do this. This is what I hope for. This is what I'm planning for. This is what I like to see. This is exciting to me. That's not exciting to me. This is what I want to happen. In the back of your mind, you say, but Lord, whatever your plan is, I want to follow that because I know your plan is perfect. Jeremiah 10:23 I know O Lord that a man's way is not in himself nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps you know where perfect peace comes from beloved it's from being able to get up in the morning and say lord i sure would like to see this happen today this is my heart's desire but i'm surrendered to your will that's where peace comes from now go out and pay somebody $150 an hour Go give them $200, $250 an hour, and there's a place for that, I believe, heavily in counseling. But in the end of the day, if you want real peace, you give your life to Christ, and you say, Lord, whatever your plan is for my life, I'll take it, and he will give you a peace that passes all understanding, is what his word says. He will make it that way. And let's go on through some of this history here, because the Lord gives it to us, right? He wouldn't give it to us if it weren't a part of his plan. Amen? So let's look at verse 12. Because Jesus understood that he was on the timetable of the Father, notice what it says, he withdrew into Galilee. He's beginning his ministry. 
he withdrew into Galilee. Now we need to talk about that just for a minute because you're going to not get the point of what Matthew wants us to see if we don't dwell on this for just a minute. Some people will say, well, the reason he withdrew into Galilee is because Herod, now Herod the Great is gone by now, but he has left three sons in charge of this entire region of Palestine. So Herod was just a title. So don't get lost in that being Herod the Great. This was not. This was one of his sons, Antipas. And so some people will say, well, yeah, he left Galilee because Herod Antipas was hating John. And we know that historically from John's gospel, John the Apostle. And so Jesus probably was afraid, and so he was wanting to get out of Dodge. That's not why Jesus was wanting to get out of Dodge. He was getting out of town because it was the Father's plan, which leads us to the real purposes for Jesus' travels here. Notice for two specific reasons. Number one is to reach the most unlikely people was part of God's plan. He left Galilee. He's going to go to Nazareth. We'll see in just a second. On eventually to Capernaum. Because God had a plan to reach some of the most unlikely people. This is our God, right? Would you say in a crowd that you're kind of an unlikely person for God to reach? I mean, that's what I would say about me. I came from a little country, village town south of here. Had no claim to any kind of rights of anything. The church I grew up in had 20 people on a good Sunday. I had no rights at all to be called by God to do anything. But God had a plan. God has a plan for all of us. I'm an unlikely person. You're an unlikely person. You're not somebody in a great position of authority. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. But spiritually, you're an unlikely person because you're full of sin, just like I am. And then secondly, to fulfill prophecy. Let's look at these, these latter verses again. I want to show this on the... Pasquale, if we could show, throw those uh, slides up here. He says in verse 13, Leaving Nazareth, he came to Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But let me just show you this region of Galilee here just for a second as I stand off. Sorry for the size of the slide here. I've got a couple of them. Here's the Judean wilderness area. This is Jerusalem right in here. Okay, you'll recognize that area. Well, Galilee is up in this area here. See it right there? The Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias because Tiberias is right here. Capernaum is right up here. Let's look at the next one there. For a second. Here's a better picture of it. The Decapolis, that was an area of about 10 major villages. Just so just know that name. We'll get to that at some point. But this whole region of Galilee, this was owned by the Romans. This is Syria. Okay? This is going to be Jordan over here. Go to the next one, if you will. This is a kind of a cutout view. Here's a view of the Lake of Gennesaret. That's also the same thing. The Sea of Galilee. All the same thing. Here's Capernaum, where he's going. Here is Gennesaret, Magdala, but all this area over here is Galilee. So Jesus now has made himself up through Nazareth, which is where he grew up. You remember that? He comes back to Nazareth to minister there. We'll see that in a second. Moves his way up into the north. Now the reason, the question is, why was he doing that? Why was he going? Well, you say, well, he's just going to reach people. That's exactly right. But unlikely people. Remember, we're taught over and over in Scripture that Jesus came to reach the Jews. And he did. He tells the disciples, go reach my people. He sends them out to the Jews first. But would you be surprised to find that Jesus actually goes to the Gentiles when he begins his ministry first? He didn't go to the Jews. He went to Gentile people living in Jewish land. Fascinating. 
So let's keep going here. Galilee was about 50 miles long, about 25 miles wide, but it was really heavily populated. It was very fertile, a beautiful part of the country. Josephus, who was the then governor of the Galilean region, wrote this about it. He said there were about 204 villages in a 50-mile area there, populated with no less than about 15,000 people per village. Now, somebody do the math quickly on your phone. 204 times 15,000. That's a lot of folks crammed into a small surface area. So you can understand even already what Jesus is thinking. What would Jesus' thinking be? i got to go where the people are, right? Listen, now think about that. That seems very simple, but it's really very profound. What sin wants to do to you and me is to isolate ourselves. It wants us to remove ourselves from the crowd, to get away from people. How many of you have thought, oh, if I could just get away from everybody? I just want to, end of the day, I just want to be away from everybody, get away from everything. I don't want to deal with people. Well, Jesus ran to people. He looked for people. And that's what we're to do. That's the heart of the true believer is we're to go where the people are. Yes, we need our breaks. Yes, we need our rest. But we are to be the proclaimers. Well, how are you going to proclaim the excellencies of the gospel to a people group that's not there? You can't do it. I remember years ago when we took our mission trip, most of you won't even remember this, it's been a long time ago, we're getting old now, we took our first, I think it was probably our first mission trip down to Mexico, we took the youth, and there was a young guy who was a missionary there by the name of Randy Ashcraft, anybody remember that name? I think Harry Daniel might be the only one, yeah, Harry, you remember Randy, okay. So I remember we were riding, we flew into El Paso, you remember that? Randy picked us up in his uh, his van, and uh, we, boy, we had another four or five hour drive way down into the heart of Mexico. And I never forget, we were driving through there and we were just, we were having fun, but it was like desolate. And there was nobody around. And I looked at Randy, I was sitting in the front seat there. I think, Harry, you might have been sitting behind me in the van there. And I said, Randy, where are we going? And he says, we're going to go way down to this village. I said, what brought you way down here? And he looked at me real funny, like I had no idea what I was talking about, which I didn't. He said, because, duh. This is where the people are. And that was such a profound statement. It sounds so simple. But in a spiritual sense, what that missionary was saying to me is that, Bruce, we are called to go to the people. We go find them. We live among them. We make our life among them. Why? So that we can share the gospel. This life is not about us. We're born again. We're already rescued. So we go share the good news. That's our purpose. That's why, beloved, we stand up and we make these crazy announcements about bringing candy in for Halloween and put little books in bags and asking you to go out with us. It's not because we're just trying to make the church move along. It's because souls need to be rescued. Right now, two sisters, um, Peggy and... Um, Jane. Yeah, what's her name? <laughs> God knows. <laughs> That's my brain. They've handed out 250 flyers in the last couple weeks. These two ladies right here. Now, they didn't ask me to tell you that. They'd probably be mad at me for saying that. They asked me Friday, can I print another hundred of them? Because they've already covered the neighborhood back here. Why are they doing that? Well, because the pastor said you better do it. No. They came to me and said, we want to do this because 
We've got to rescue souls. Why are we putting stuff on Facebook? Why are we putting it on the website? Why are we trying to find other avenues? Because we just want people to be excited because Laurel Hill's in the area? No. Because souls need to be rescued. That's why. That's why we do what we're doing. Why are we building the playground? Because we just want something to do? I don't think so. You get it, I hope. We're here, beloved, because God put us here. I hope you're still doing the bless every home thing. Do you remember that? Where you're supposed to be praying for your neighborhood? I hope you're still doing it. I hope those emails are still popping up on your, your radar every day. And that you're taking time to go through them real quickly, saying, Lord, open their hearts. Call the elect to yourself. People need to be rescued. All right, now, let's keep going here. There are other reasons why Jesus went to Galilee. Galilee had a different mindset than the rest of Israel as well. They were a different group. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the years that you've lived in different parts of the world, people have a different mindset about things, right? Greene County is different from Albemarle County. Didn't know if you knew this that or not. Orange, Madison, we're all a little different. We all got our quirks. Interestingly about Galilee up in the north is that they were open to more ideas. The culture knew that. Jesus knew that. Now listen, they were open. Josephus said they were ever fond of innovations and by nature disposed to changes and delighted in seditions. How about that? They kind of had this strong will about them. You'll remember that in just a minute when I bring up the name of somebody who comes from there. They were always ready for a new leader to rise up and to lead them. They were looking for work to be done, for insurrections to occur over Rome. They were tired of Rome. Rome was just to the... uh, west of them there and they were looking for changes Josephus says they were quick tempered and loved to quarrel but they were brave and honorable people all of that making really fertile ground for Jesus to go and preach I mean that's the kind of people you want right I mean if anybody's going to go preach he doesn't want to preach to a dead dying nothing crowd He wants to go preach to a crowd that says, hey, show me the path and give me the torch. And let's go get them. That's the crowd that Jesus wanted. Hey, if you're going to rescue people, you better have some people that are in shape. You got to have people that know how to pull the rope and pull the oar and pull the paddles. Jerusalem's dead. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're full of dead men's bones. You're blind guides. You're leading them into the pit. But up in Galilee and beyond, there's some people up there that got some fire in them. And I'm going to go get them. And we're going to change the world. And that's what he's doing. If you notice, Isaiah called this, look at your passage there, he called it the Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where I was talking about for a minute, a minute ago. This whole area was made up of non-Jews, which kept them from being bound up by tradition and the things that they had made up. These were ready-to-go people. Unfortunately, those things often, those legalistic things, cause people to be so blinded by the truth of the gospel, get so stuck in their ways. Again, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, people who know so much about the Bible that they're no good with the Bible anymore. They can't see Jesus anymore. And all Jesus really wants us to see is love me and love people. 
This area was a great crossroads, Josephus says. Again, remember, he was the governor of the region. He would know. He was the political big shot. Isaiah called it the way of the sea. He's referring to the great Mediterranean Sea. And so just imagine in your eye, your mind's eye, as Jesus is thinking about this region and where to go promote the gospel about himself would be in the main crossroads of life, literally. It'd be like going to the intersection of some major highways in our nation in some major city saying, this is where the cultures collide and that's where I'm going to find the hearts that are ready to be rescued. He wasn't running from the culture. And that road went from the north of of Israel all the way to the south, east to west. And that's where it would intersect up there. But this knowledge about Galilee is also why it was so difficult for people to accept him. Accept him. In other words, his own people rejected him by saying, what in the world comes out of Galilee? I mean, there's just a bunch of weird people up there well that's where Jesus was from in fact later Jesus when he was persecuted by the Jewish officials would say this in John 7 some of the people therefore when they heard these words were saying this certainly is the prophet others were saying this is the Christ still others were saying surely the Christ is not going to come out of Galilee is he well guess what yeah he was because he reaches the most unlikely people He looks for the most unlikely people. Nicodemus said the same thing just a couple verses later, same chapter. Nicodemus was a religious leader, a Jew. He came to him before being one of them, said, Our law, talking to the Pharisees, doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? He's talking to the religious leaders. And they answered him and said, You're not also from Galilee, are you, Nicodemus? In other words, you're not buddying up with this Jesus guy, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. You know what that's like? That's like saying to you in your neighborhood right now, what comes out of that neighborhood? What comes out of Twin Lakes? What comes out of Forest Lakes? What comes out of Greene County? What comes out of Orange? I mean, what comes out of the city of Charlottesville? Give me a break. Nothing spiritual with depth comes out of those areas. Really? Yes, it does. The Holy Spirit comes out in the hearts of his people. And God will change a world with people who are looking for God to use them in his way. God will do it. God will do it. And it wasn't Galilee he planned to visit only. Notice he went on to Nazareth. That was his childhood home. This is what I was saying earlier. He gets kicked out of there he, by his own plan. Let's remember that. Because... The people tried to kill him in the synagogue. And so Matthew tells us he goes from there into Capernaum in verse 13. And Isaiah, he, Matthew uses this passage in Isaiah, talking about Zebulun and Naphtali, because it's the land that was first given to Jacob many, many moons ago, before Jesus was on the scene, who were told, listen, to drive out the inhabitants of the Canaanites. When Jacob gave the land to his boys, he said, Now you go up there, and part of what you need to do is you drive out all those inhabitants of the Canaanites. Why? Because they're going to intermix with you, and it's going to cause big problems. But guess what? They did like most obedient children do, and they did not follow in obedience. That's what happened. 
Okay, Dad, we'll go up there. They get up there, and they didn't do it. And so that became a real cesspool of a problem with all different kinds of people groups. So from there, Matthew says Jesus makes his way up onto Capernaum, probably because by that day it was a flourishing city. It's not so much anymore. In fact, by the time of Jesus' end, it had all but basically rejected him. And Matthew covers that in chapter 11. Today, in fact, there's not much to see even in Capernaum. So this whole region has just been in a flux for years and years and years. But here's the thing that we're going to close with is that these people were people created in the image of God. But they were the downcast. They were the nobodies. They were the people that nobody wanted to have anything to do with. The non-traditional people. The mix of the nations. The weirdos. His message of salvation was for them. It wasn't just for the people who think themselves better than others. Beloved, I don't know about you, but I am often overwhelmed by the fact that God in his infinite mercy decided to open my eyes, and I'm talking personally here, to the truth of his gospel. And I would rather suspect, because I know most all of you pretty well, that you're surprised by the same thing. That God, in eternity past, decided that you were worthy to bring glory to himself. And so he opened your heart. As you look at your life, and you're really honest with yourself, you're going to look at your life and you're going to say, man, I've made a mess of this thing. There's so many decisions that I would redo if I could do it. There are things that I would not do again, I would do again, I would change if I could. And Lord, why would you have ever chosen me to do anything for you? You ever feel that way? I certainly do. That's why I often say to you and I say to other people, listen, we're the church of messed up people, right? Would you agree with that? Now, those of you who are not messed up, don't raise your hand. Don't say anything. You can say, yeah, not me. Okay, good. At least somebody's keeping us on track. But mostly we're people who are just tired of the way their lives have been because of their sinfulness and just want Jesus to make a difference in them. Right? I hope that's you. Jesus looks for people like that. He wants people who know they have nothing to offer him. He wants people who are broken and messed up because he comes in and saves the day. He rescues the soul. And he creates them to be what he wants them to be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Matthew is going to write in chapter 9, When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are sick. Our dear sister, the, you and I probably were having a hard time understanding her language. Thankfully, Anna was translating. was a sister who evidently acknowledged the fact that she was sick spiritually sick and she needed the help of Christ she stood in the water in front of us as Hamp said it's not fun it can be kind of irritating to have to do that in the flesh but she did it because she understood that she needed Christ 
And I think in this little section, in these few verses here, we need to understand that Jesus came for the purpose of seeking out specific people who are going to make his kingdom. That's you and me. Now, what we're going to see next time is he's going to select four men. You know who they are? If you've been doing your reading, you know who they are. Peter, James, right? John, and who else? Andrew. Four men. Listen. Four men who were from that northern area of Galilee that was nothing. I have to believe in my heart that not only was he rescuing other disciples, but he specifically went, we'll see this beginning next week, to get those men. To get those men. Because he wanted them on his team. Peter, bless his heart. How many times have we had stories about Peter? Hothead, always rebellious, questioning, just wanted to fight. Never was settled on anything. And these men become the greatest conquerors of the spiritual world that we will ever see. Right? And I just think that we need to think like that this morning, that we have become also those people. Jesus came to find us. He came to rescue us so that we would proclaim the truth of who he is. And I love this in John 17. Here's the message. Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. It's the same message as John the Baptist. That's where we started this morning, and that's where we finish. It's the same message. Repent. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to be that person that Jesus comes to look for? You need to repent. Start there. Ask God to forgive you. Lord, I made a mess in my life. I wish things were different. But thank you, Father, that you can come into my heart even as a messed up person and I can be what you want me to be. And the message is the same for everybody. Just come into my heart. Change me. Make me what you want me to be. And I'll be amenable to it. I'll acknowledge you as the leader of my life, the king of my life, the Lord of my life. Folks, listen, I've said this so many times over the years. I know ad nauseum. But what does God want to do with Laurel Hill? Do you really think he just rescued us so we could show up on Sunday morning just to have fellowship together? I just don't believe that. I believe he rescued us to have fellowship but also so that we could be a part of conquering the world. I believe that. I believe this word is true. I believe Jesus is true. I believe everything that he wrote is true. And I believe that he's coming back to get us. And I believe we're going to live with him one day forever and forever and forever. And we're going to enjoy his kingdom like never before. But we've got to be about his work. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. He's looking to us to be his hands and his feet. That's us. We got to do it. Okay? We get it? We got to do it. He'll give us the power because it's his plan. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, we never want to forget that. We thank you for your power that has called us. We thank you for your power that's made us a church. We thank you for sustaining us all these years. We thank you for the hearts of those that love you 
are called according to your purpose. Now, Lord, may we be diligent in our pursuit of you internally, and may we be diligent in our pursuit of you externally. Not through vicious means, but through love and peace. May your name go through our voice and through our mind and our heart as we reach the lost. Thank you, Lord, for your work. We honor you this morning and we end this time together as we partake of the Lord's table, your table, as you told us to remember your sacrifice for us. This is your sacrifice. This is your memorial to us as a reminder of your blood and your body that was given. And Lord, may we take it freely and fully and truly be your workers, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have some men that can come help us this morning.